0: Welcome to your headquarters for knowledge and helpful advice on a variety of topics, all from trusted experts in their fields. It's time for River City Podcasts. Elizabeth mcmaster is the founder and owner of the law offices of elizabeth mcmaster plc after graduating from the catholic university columbus school of law in washington dc in 2006 and passing the virginia state bar elizabeth opened her practice in historic fredericksburg virginia in february 2007 elizabeth specializes in elder law estate planning guardianship probate special needs planning and mental health law elizabeth grew up on a hundred and six acre farm in gettysburg Pennsylvania, which spurred her love of history, especially the U.S. Civil War, which led her to attend college in Virginia. Although born in Pennsylvania, Elizabeth is now a Virginian at heart. Elizabeth is a member of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys and is a board member for the Virginia Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. Elizabeth is also a member of the Virginia Beach Bar Association, the Virginia State Bar, and Suffolk Business Women's Group. Elizabeth has been on the board of the Alzheimer's Association, which is near and dear to her heart, as she has lost a grandmother, grandfather, uncle, and great-uncle, as well as countless clients to Alzheimer's disease. Elizabeth moved to North Suffolk, Virginia in December of 2020. Elizabeth lives with her husband, John, his adult son, three French bulldogs, and a very sweet black cat. Elizabeth, welcome to River City Podcast. Well, thank you, Jess. So May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I'm so happy you're here to talk more about that topic. There's a lot more openness, I think, to discussing mental health now, kind of more than ever before. It seems like some of the insecurity or shame of discussing this topic has receded a bit. People are getting a little bit more willing, I think, in a lot of communities to acknowledge and discuss the topic. Have you seen a shift at all in your business over the last year or two?
1: I believe so. And plus, I think it's becoming a lot more prevalent, um, especially after the COVID lockdowns in 2020. I think that caused um, some things to come to the forefront due to the isolation of everything.
0: So a big shift since COVID. What are some of the numbers right now with people that are dealing with mental health issues? (laughs) It looks like from
1: the research I've done that 21% of American adults are experiencing at least one mental illness, which is approximately 50 million people. And the age brackets are young adults, which are ages 18 to 25 in the U.S., have the highest rate of experiencing mental health conditions at 30.6%. Then the next highest is ages 26 to 49 at 25.3%, and then 15 over 145
0: I actually just had a conversation with somebody who has a son the same age as my oldest son. He is 20. And they were saying that a lot of that is the kids that were juniors when COVID first hit and then missed their senior year. And that age bracket was really the most affected from the pandemic. So it's fascinating to me that statistically that just falls right in line. Yes, and I do because
1: as part of that, also the socialization part and I guess the fear of what is this and what's, you know, what is our life going to look like? The conditions that are prevalent as well are anxiety, depression, PTSD, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia. And it also affects females more than males. Females are about 7% to males at 4.2%.
0: We find ourselves in these situations where clearly from these numbers, it's a lot of people where we're seeing this going on with a loved one, whether it be a child, a best friend, a parent, a sister, and we don't know what to do. I mean, it's scary when you start to see this in somebody you care about. What are some steps to do if we realize that this is happening to a loved one?
1: Well, the first step would be, of course, trying to get them to voluntarily get a diagnosis, go to therapy, see a psychiatrist, that sort of thing. But part of some of these diseases, especially uh, along the lines of bipolar and schizophrenia, there's paranoia involved. Getting that voluntary buy-in from the individual can be... Hard and if they're an adult, eighteen or older, it's really hard because they can do whatever the heck they want to do unless they're under a guardianship. So the best thing to do, of course, is the voluntary route. However, if it comes to a crisis point, and that's usually what happens, then the parent or friend or spouse can seek what's called a emergency custody order through the local magistrate. That is basically where the person goes to the magistrate, be it the parent, the spouse. Whoever it may be, friend, and tells the magistrate, this is what's going on. My friend, my son, my daughter hallucinating. They're seeing people that aren't there. They're talking, they have this grandiose these religious beliefs that they never shared before, or the CIA, the FBI, that's a real thing. Can't tell you how many people I've represented who were being followed by the CIA and the FBI. It happens. Then once the emergency custody order, if there's probable cause, and this is not criminal at all. But you're detaining somebody against their will. So you have to go through the same process. If the probable cause is shown, then that allows the magistrate to have the police come and pick up that individual who's in crisis and then they get assessed at a local emergency room by a local here in Virginia Community Services Board representative. And then they will determine if the person should be placed under what we call a temporary detention order, which is a TDO. And that means they will be placed in a hospital for psychiatric care and will be evaluated and will have a hearing within 72 hours of the detention.
0: Having recently actually been through this myself with a friend, a lot of what I saw happen with family and with friends and even their spouse was not wanting to upset them. And from the sidelines, my fear was they're going to end up getting themselves in really big trouble in that state, whether it's legal or losing a license or a job or whatever. But in that moment, I think it's really important that people know you're very much protecting them.
1: Absolutely. I think there was several years ago in Richmond, I believe it was a young man who was shot by police and killed. I believe he was suffering under a mental illness and was having hallucinations and he lost his life because of it. As with anything that people do, you know, when you're a parent or a child, you do things they don't enjoy or like, but you're doing it for their best interest. That's the way to look at it. And I do that a lot when parents get guardianship of an intellectually disabled young adult. They feel really bad about doing it, but at the same time, they're protecting their young adult from harm from themselves or other people. I think that would be the best way to look at it.
0: One of the things that can be the most challenging things we might face in suddenly finding a loved one in a mental crisis and realizing they can no longer advocate for themselves. How do you then begin to advocate for your loved one?
1: Well, and this is the problem. Once again, we're back to the pandemic that we're running into. I get a call or email probably once a week from someone who has a loved one in a psychiatric facility here in Virginia, and it's all across the board. I had one from the southwest part of Virginia the other day. Psychiatric hospitals are not talking to family. We don't know that maybe the individual says, I don't want you speaking to my family, and then they can't because of HIPAA. But I've had other people say my son or daughter, whomever, has given permission for us to speak, and still they are not telling us. A lot of these facilities are not even letting the families know when the hearing is going to be. It's also troubling that the case manager's family to get a history because you cannot rely on somebody who is having some kind of episode of psychotic or what have you to give reliable information, especially if they think little Wayne is God. You can't rely on what they're telling you. You need to get some background information. And they're not even doing that in some instances. So that was very concerning. I've seen quite an uptick in that in the last several years. And I've personally gone through that myself two years ago.
0: Have you discovered any solutions in terms of of how to be able to overcome that? Well, the only solution, and well, the one
1: with the hearing, I tell them because a lot of people don't understand that these hearings go through the general district court in whatever jurisdiction. So for example, if you're up in Snowden at Fredericksburg, which is Mary Washington Hospital's uh, psychiatric facility, then the general district court in the city of Fredericksburg is the one who handles technically the hearings, the paperwork, that sort of thing. If the hospital, and I haven't heard this from Snowden, just use an example, but if Snowden won't tell you when a hearing's going to be, I would call the general district. I tell people, call the general district court's clerk's office and ask them, when do you have hearings for people under a TDO? It just boggles my mind because when I represent people under a TDO, I like to usually having the family there just to get some of the background and to know that my client had somebody there advocating for them. Sometimes they wanted them to seek treatment. Other times they didn't. They wanted them out and to come home, which is great that they're there. But usually when it was a first instance of a mental illness uh, rearing its ugly head, there's a lot of denial. And that's on the family, too. Because they don't understand what's going on and there's no way. I'm just sure little Johnny got a hold of some bad weed and that's what, you know, this has got to be. Well, by the third hospitalization, either they're there to advocate for little Johnny to get help or they wash their hands of it, which is unfortunate. I've seen that way too many times.
0: The last thing I really want to cover with you is guardianship, and that has become sort of a bad word because of the journey we all saw Britney Spears go on, and now it's just like terrifying. It seems like this control thing, but there are times where this is really necessary. Can you talk to us about when that might be and if there's alternatives?
1: Well, I I have done, and they're the hardest guardianships to do, are the psychiatric guardianships, and those are generally done When you have someone who is consistently not taking their medication, not doing therapy, putting themselves in danger, unable to care. And sometimes if somebody has had what we call a psychotic break, and the way that was described to me is there's a linear line and there's an etch in the line. And if you cross that line, which is the break, you can't ever go back to where you were in the brain. It's done. If someone who has gone through that psychotic break to that severity and I represented several people like that, then there's no way they're ever going to. There's no medication that's going to cure them. There's no therapy that's going to cure them. They need someone to help them. That would be one instance. Also, if you have somebody, I did a guardianship several years ago for someone who was not only intellectually disabled, they were also mentally ill. So in that case, absolutely, you would want to make sure that you protect that individual in that circumstance. Now, if you have somebody who, let's say, has a depression disorder or let's say bipolar disorder, that sort of thing. And you can get them to a place where they've been taking their medication, they're clear. We do have a medical directive that they can sign and that medical directive will have a clause in there. If I'm in crisis and I need to be hospitalized, I'm allowing my agent to hospitalize me for up to 10 days, even against my will. We call that a Ulysses clause. And if the individual goes to see their psychiatrist or whoever they see, and the psychiatrist does a letter stating, yes, I believe my patient understands what this means and is capable of signing, then I have them come into the office, sign, I try to do it the same day, sign the power of return or medical directive stating, I appoint my agent to do this. And as long as we have that letter with it, then the agent is able to do that. Is it hard getting people to do this? Absolutely. I have not done many of them, but it is an alternative to the guardianship. And like I said, if somebody is, let's say, depressive or has bipolar and has insight that's clear and that sort of thing, then that's a good way to have that. Now, if they get hospitalized for 10 days, they're still not clear. Then we have to go through that whole ECO, TDO process if they're not able to come out at that point. But at least there's 10 days of acute treatment.
0: If someone's in a situation like this with a loved one and they really are not sure what their next steps are or where they're at, is this the kind of thing that you consult on to advise? Yeah, and I've seen quite an uptick, like I've said,
1: and I've spoken to people in Northern Virginia, Western Virginia, Florida, had an individual here. People just don't know where to turn and what to do and they don't understand the process. When I started practicing law, I had no idea that this was even a thing. The only reason I got into it was the attorney that I clerked for in law school. He said, hey, we need someone to another attorney to represent people at um Synod at Fredericksburg. And I'm like, well, I don't know what that means, but OK. <laughs> so but then once I got in there, you know, I saw some scary stuff I had not to get off topic. But I had one uh, client and this was when I was shadowing somebody. This man was picked up on a Friday. There's no hearings over the weekend. So he had to stay over the week. And he told the staff there that he was only in there because he was dating the ex-wife of a police officer. And that was the police officer who put him there. And he said, I have a letter from the chief. You can get that. So Monday, sure enough, here comes this letter that this police officer had been harassing this man and had him put into a facility over the weekend. No mental illness, nothing wrong with him other than the person he chose to date. That's an extreme, but that To me is what kind of hooked me into going. Well, the people in here they need to have their rights protected. That was, like I said, an extreme example, but we want to make sure that the people that are in a facility are getting the treatment they need and that they're at the right place they need to be.
0: Thank you for doing everything you do to help advocate and help people that are in crisis. If you or someone you know is in immediate crisis, contact the nine eight eight Suicide Crisis Lifeline by calling or texting nine eight eight. If you have a loved one experiencing mental illness and you need help figuring out options, you can go to www.themcmasterlawfirm.com. That's T-H-E-M-C-M-A-S-T-E-R lawfirm.com and set up a time to speak with Elizabeth. Thank you for being on River City Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Jess. Thanks for listening to River City Podcast. If you're interested in setting up a podcast for your business, go to rivercityconsulting.com.